Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Opinions. Your idea is terrible, but mine is very good. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Protocop, part robot, part man, all cop. In theaters now. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers. Um, we do a lot of things behind in front of the camera. And we use all of that as a basis of analyzing films, seeing what makes them tick. Things that maybe you didn't notice or didn't think too deeply about. Um, themes and um, cinematography tricks and how it plays into the story you're trying to tell. Uh, and a number of other things. Music. We try to use all of that as a basis for, one, getting better at, I don't know, telling stories ourselves. Um, but also it's just fun to talk about movies in an intellectual way, intellectualize art. I, I appreciate that. I feel like most good art has some kind of intellectual undertone um, that you can engage with if you wish. And some of the best art allows you to not have to in, in order to appreciate a film, right? You can, whatever, go watch a movie and just say, oh man, that was fun. And then go have dinner. Or, you know, the best stuff is like, you go have dinner and then talk about it for another hour and a half. I'm like, whoa, what about this character decision? What is it really trying to say about whatever the nature of war? Um, those are really fun things that I think we try to tease out anytime we're, we're covering a film because it's more fun to engage intellectually. Um, and I think most of the movies I was thinking about this recently, like we've only done like maybe three comedies. I want to say because Comedies usually just don't have that much to say about the world on average. Um, and so the stuff that we tend to cover, science fiction especially, right, has something else that's going on underneath the surface. And so we really appreciate films that are layered um, with a lot of, I don't know, uh, thought and philosophical ideas to, to, to engage with um, beyond whatever's happening within the story itself. What say you? <laughs> Totally agree. Totally agree. And I feel like this film that we're going to do today has a lot of that stuff. There's just a lot of a lot of stuff around the plot that thicken the plot, which is already super thick. <laughs> I mean, as thick as it gets, if you want to be honest, you know, and especially in a in a world today of stakes get higher and higher and higher and the world is at in danger all the time. How do you heighten the feeling of that? Well, Instead, if the world is always at stake, right, then it's got to be the relationship or lack thereof or development of the characters and how they interact with each other. And I feel like this film does a very good job of that. Uh, yeah. So if you haven't seen it, we're today we're covering Crimson Tide. So please pause this episode and go watch it from the what is it? 1994, 1995. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 95 uh pause the episode go watch it because we're gonna spoil a bunch of stuff so many things we're gonna talk about it all we're gonna look at cinematography the use of dutch angles for dramatic effect and also for the setting um, we'll look at some of the story and writing the betrayals uh the conversations about everything horses command duty and doing what's right uh we'll look at some of the performances uh music by Hans zimmer we'll touch on some random Crimson Tide facts and other such stuff and things and stuff. Quick synopsis of the film. On a U.S. nuclear missile sub, 
A young first officer stages a mutiny to prevent his trigger-happy captain from launching nuclear missiles before confirming his orders to do so. It's directed by Tony Scott, screenplay by Michael Schiffer, cinematography by Darius Wolski, featuring Denzel Washington as XO Hunter, Gene Hackman as Captain Ramsey, Viggo Mortensen as Weps, George Zunza, sure, as Cobb, James Gandolfini as Lieutenant Doherty. I don't mean to suggest that you're indecisive, Mr. Hunter. Not at all. Just, um, complicated. Of course, that's the way the Navy wants you. Me, they want it simple. Well, you certainly fooled them, sir. <laughs> Be careful there, Mr. Hunter. That's all I got to rely on being a simple-minded son of a bitch. Rick Over gave me my command, a checklist, a target, and a button to push. All I had to know is how to push it, and they'd tell me when. They seem to want you to know why. I would hope they'd want us all to know why, sir. The Naval War College, it was metallurgy and nuclear reactors, not 19th century philosophy. <laughs> War is a continuation of politics by other means. Von Clausewitz. I think, uh, sir, that what he was actually trying to say was a little more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the purpose of war is, is to serve a political end, but the true nature of war is to serve itself. <laughs> I'm very impressed. <laughs> In other words, the sailor most likely to win the war is the one most willing to part company with the politicians and ignore everything except the destruction of the enemy. That You'd agree with that? I'd agree that uh, that's what Clausewitz was trying to say. But you wouldn't agree with it? No, sir, I do not. <laughs> no, I, I just think that in the nuclear world, a true enemy can't be destroyed. Attention on deck. Von Clausewitz will now tell us exactly who the real enemy is. <laughs> <laughs> in my humble opinion in the nuclear world the true enemy is war itself can you just can you just let it roll <laughs> just, we'll just watch it just watch the, the entire episode. movie <laughs> oh bro i mean where do you even begin? What this is close to 30 years old. I mean, it's 28, you know, this year. Um, wow. What do you think, man? Crimson Tide. Uh, I mean, the one statement that I've been wanting to make, waiting to make since we said we were going to do this movie was before I even watched it was they don't make movies like this anymore. And I texted it to you <laughs> yesterday, I guess it was right. Cause I couldn't wait any longer. <laughs> Because we had to miss last week because of the you know, craziness. Uh, this this film just does it all, man. It is, to me, one of the most perfect films. It is just so fantastic. And I, as I'm watching it, and I don't know how I would make it any better. I mean, I love that one of your notes is is Dutch angles for a setting, right? I mean, how else? What what better way to make some a a, a space feel feel cramped 
than to angle the camera so that it feels like that's the only way you could get that shot. Right. Mm. Like it just feels like you're backed up against a wall all the time in this, you know, metal tube under the water. Right. Except when there's these the relaxed moments, like the, like when the dog he's walking the dog and the dog is peeing on, you know, we have like, just like normal shot. It's a two shot even, you know, mm-hmm. in this and even they're on a railing. So the walls are out to the side farther. Right. So it feels like the most open space it could possibly be. Right. So you feel relaxed. But and and then the captain comes back and he's and he he's like, no, I'm forcing this down their throat. Like they got to be strong when it's hard to be strong. All this stuff. So it kind of like brings you kind of sucks the walls in in that moment. I, it's a masterclass in every sense of the word in filmmaking to me. I mean, and I've seen other other um, submarine movies that are fantastic, just as good. But something about this movie and it maybe it's Gene Hackman and Denzel going at each other. I mean, it's probably Gene Hackman and Denzel going at each other, honestly. Like there's just something about it that that is so beautiful and and turns it into art seeing those two people on screen turns it into art for me. And what I was talking about earlier with, you know, and you got to think about other movies that have come out around this time. You know, you've got like what hunt for red October, you've got the top gun, like the original, you know, like all these were like the world is at stake. Right. And it's just like, so how do you make something more important? Well, you take away you do a couple of things in this film. They take away the knowledge of whether or not an order is correct. Right. And they take away that knowledge from not only the people uh, like the, the, the characters, but also from you, the audience, Hmm. you don't know if the, if it's correct or not, you could be the only sub out there that could launch, you know, the nukes, but you, 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 and you have to do it by this certain time or else the world is at stake. You're going to lose the country. The country will, you know, cease to exist. Right. Because the perspective is trapping us with them. We yes. don't get any outside knowledge. That's a good point. Yeah. They don't have the knowledge and we don't have the, the knowledge. We have as much as they do, but they are the professionals, quote unquote. Mm. So what do you do when you are alone? You have no way to contact the outside world because you're, you're, beacon has you know been destroyed you can't come up uh to the surface like all of this stuff it's putting them in a position in in a very smart way that has taken away that piece of knowledge from all of us that's that's so awesome it's so wonderful then you then you feel like you're trapped in a sub and the world has disappeared right it is just you with these guys in this sub and then you know, you can, and Denzel's performance is so masterful. I mean, he's just one of my favorite actors of all freaking time because he can do it all in an instant. And that, that clip that you showed is so perfect of, you know, he can laugh and, and be light, but you know that, that there's something beneath the surface that he, he wants to say, but he has to be very careful about how he says it. And he, he, you know, is walking on thin ice, but at the same time, he respects the, the captain and, and everybody at the table and, He's new on the ship too, so he doesn't want to overstep his bounds. And he plays that all perfectly. But then at the very end, that last line, I mean, there's like you can see a shift in his body instantly when he like his smiles and then he says the line, but he's straight. And it's it's just so perfect. I completely agree. Like 
for the performances, I love the body language throughout the entire movie because there's a pecking order. And therefore, all the words you have to say have to be right. It's a yes, sir. It's a no, sir. It's thank you, sir. May I have another, sir, right? Uh, but your body language is where you start to betray how you actually feel. Because you can't do it in your tone. You can't do it in your word choice. And so what it's going to creep out. Lies creep out. You know, the truth gets out of there. Um, and so... Uh, even when they're doing like the weapons readiness test, this is a beautiful little moment between Hackman and Denzel uh, where they're using body language. And um, even Denzel starts to uh, like strangle his voice a little bit, confirming the orders. He's saying the right things, but he's having a hard time getting his body to to cooperate. Right. And so his voice kind of chokes the dialogue a little bit and it's all subtextual, right? It's all non-verbalized stuff. It's communicated with looks, the physical tension, the way he's carrying himself suddenly. Um, and you know, Gene Hackman's giving him second glances, third glances, shaking his head. Um, it's everything they're not saying. And to your point about that scene, like Denzel, the way he uses a pause, is just, perfect <laughs> like it's so good and it's it's he's carefully responding he's choosing his words and it's all all those things are just implied by the way he takes a moment before saying his line right and even that pause that that laughter from the table creeps in and he joins in like yeah okay this is funny because at first he's really trying to think and and choose his words and then everyone's kind of cracking up like okay yeah 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 okay i'm with y'all like um and it's all influencing his delivery right he's reacting he's not crafting a delivery he's reacting to the moment um and creating these pauses is allowing all that stuff to happen right um same thing a few minutes later right well you seem to have the pulse of the men and he pauses he really waits because before he, he finally says you know Thank you, sir. Um, Because he's not sure if that's a compliment or sarcasm. Uh, But he has to say something. Uh, Yeah, the performances, man. God, I think, to your point, Hackman and Denzel just, you know, teeing off on each other like that is certainly a big reason why this movie just resonates. I've watched it two and a half times now. And each time I'm like, I just can't blink it's just i don't want to look at my phone i don't want to do anything else can i can i also say that whatever however they used to capture audio is lost now Mm. the sound on this film if you if you watch this film especially in headphones is just so um like it just sucks you in you know if you listened to maybe if you just listened to the clip that that wes just played in headphones, right? It's so unbelievable. There's silence, right? There's silence. And all you hear is the hum of the engine. And and that's all you need. Maybe a couple of clinks from some glasses. But but you're waiting on pins and needles to hear what Gene Hackman's character is saying, what, what the captain is going to say. And he speaks. And then any time that you hear Denzel speak in any movie, he has this way of saying, of an, I don't know if it's because he used to do like, like, stage mm-hmm. performance or what but his enunciation is just like no other actor i've ever heard it's just really specific yeah even gene hackman like he he knows how to hit his t's and all that but like the the way denzel speaks with such clarity and with that bass like i think yeah. that's the the hard thing to do i think it's easier to to you know be that you know particular when your pitch is higher 
but to kind of carry that weight of his bass and then kind of hit every word, um, it feels like you're being punched in the face every time he talks. <laughs> it, it really does. And, but in such a, like a ASMR kind of way, yeah. you know, like that, it, like that clip is so great. Um, and, and kudos, like Tony Scott is a master in this film. Like, I, I don't know if how much of this was in the screenplay itself, but like, um, just the way that each of the scenes are crafted, the thoughtfulness in the in the audio and how it's captured when music swells in it. It's, it's there to support. It's, it doesn't always have to be there. That scene is a perfect scene that you played of of. No, we're going to put them in this room. And I want to remind you that in this room, we are in a submarine under the water. So I want you to hear the hum of the of the engine, maybe some some crackles of the the hull or whatever. Um, but I want you to feel like you're in a room in a submarine, not, you know, at dinner with some right. some guys like, no, you're in a you might be at dinner, but you're in a submarine um, and you absolutely feel that. And I feel that throughout the entire film. The audio is just so fan freaking tastic. It makes me want to go watch the movie again just to listen to it. You know, it's so, so beautiful. I was blown away. I had no idea before hitting play, even the first time I didn't realize it. Um, the second time through, I saw in the opening credits music by Hans Zimmer. I know that floored me. I was like, Oh my God, that probably explains a lot. Yeah. Um, because he won a Grammy for this, uh, for the main theme here. Just, Oh wow. I didn't know that killed it. And God, I mean, he's so good. The, he does a great job like early on, music ties these really fast sequences together there's that where they they're above deck uh or they're they're launching from the harbor and then suddenly they're on deck having a conversation that probably takes a good 10 seconds to to make that switch and the music is what carries us through and it, it's amazing you know to have such a fluid transition thanks to the score because it's big and then suddenly it's it's personal uh, enough to have a conversation and so you get the, the the majestic feeling of going out to sea in this big powerful machine um and then suddenly you know that goes away and is you know swiftly replaced with this more subtle uh personal you know score to allow us to enter into a moment with uh, hunter and ramsey because they're about to have that conversation on the deck before submerging and the music does that it's and then later in the film oh i was out I don't know why I even heard it. It's one of those things where um, it just popped out all of a sudden. The use of his the highs and lows in the film, uh, the score is flawless. Like at the, at one point, he kills the base in order to make space for like torpedoes launching, um, and and there's that whoosh that comes right when we fire when Hunter fires. You know those snapshots, and you need to hear that whoosh, and that's happening. You know in the lower end, and so moments before that we're like bass and everything's feeling like your your blood is pulsing in your ears and then suddenly gone but it doesn't feel like it's gone because of the way the sound editing is working in hand with the with the score uh to feel the whoosh so you can feel like uh the power of what's happening you know within the submarine itself uh is flawless that's like at the 52 minute mark and then similarly moments later you know uh when they're sealing off the hatch same thing to your point about great sound design the way they're capturing things and layering it when they're sealing off the hatch they let the sound design the context and the performances 
really carry most of that drama with just light musical emphasis. It's just almost in the background. Um, but everything that's happening is already so tense. You don't need to do much else. And he didn't. He's like, I know my part here and I'm going to play my part um, so that whenever I do come back, you'll feel it. Um, so sometimes you go away so that you can come back right to that end, like the choirs, because not long after that sequence with the sealing the hatch, great, incredible use of choirs, because instead of big dramatic music, we're going to make it solemn. This is when they're sinking to crush depth. And I feel like a lot of other composers, right, would really build up the drama, like, don't, don't, right? And you just kind of go big to make it feel like this is the moment where everyone dies. And instead, it feels like a prayer. It feels like this regretful tone of uh, we're going to lose everything. All is lost. Um, and it's just beautiful because it feels almost like inevitable at that point with the music, the way the music is playing. Um, it, you feel the silence and the weight of the seat. God, I don't it know. It feels what? like you're going so deep that the music can't reach you. Ooh, you know that the you're losing the world. The world is going away from you, right? Yes. And so, and so, the less there is, the more intense it feels. You're totally right. And then this, and the engines cut off, and they're just sinking. And the the way they shoot that, I don't know how they do that. You know, is it model? Is it a model? Like, how do you? Yeah, I think that's a miniature. There's a lot of ways you can shoot underwater. I saw a, a really cool Reddit post uh, a few weeks ago where a guy built. Uh, use someone's model and instead of using water, which I think they used water in this movie, uh, but instead of using water, what he actually did was fill a room with haze, like packed it to the gills. Like you can't see three feet in front of you. Um, and so whenever and you shoot it? Like, and then lit it. And so it's got, you know, this, and then you're moving the camera through that. And because it's perfectly still, it's perfectly stacked and, and pressurized in a sense whenever you move the camera by the, the, the huge miniature submarine, it just feels like the, especially motorized, right? You motorize it and it's perfectly fluid. It just feels like the sub is moving by you with some sound effects, right? Suddenly it just works wide angle, huge wide angle lens to make it feel massive on. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's that's one way I think they just had massive tanks. Um, and yeah, huge, probably like wow. a 20 foot, you know, sub miniature or something like that. That would be my wow. guess. But yeah. all the underwater shit, man, uh, the explosions. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, those live rent free in my head for the last yeah. 28 years, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, good. I mean, I could, I could keep going, but I want to hear some of your no, points. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. What else? Uh, did anything oh. else? Once you knew it was Hans Zimmer, um, did anything pop out to you about that? Or were you just kind of like, holy crap, Hans was doing it in the 90s? No, no, I, I've known he's, I mean, he's been doing since like, I don't know, earlier than that, maybe even the 70s or at least 80s, right? Yeah, the 80s he had his band, right? But was he scoring back then? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, smaller stuff, obviously, not like like big giant stuff. But yes, mm -hmm. um, I don't remember what his first film was, but. But anyway, no, I, you know, one of the beautiful things about early Hans is that it's really easy. Like, I don't think he wrote a whole lot of stuff that was kind of John Williams level, you know, like, like unforgettable motifs until, you know, the 2000s, really, mm. you know, like I maybe Gladiator would be the first one, 
that I like remember the theme, you know, where you, you think gladder, you're like, okay, I remember that theme, but you know, like, I don't remember the theme to this, you know, like I, if you ask me hum the theme to, 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 um, Crimson Tide, I wouldn't be able to do it, but so it kind of just was there to support, mm-hmm. you know, for the, th- and honestly, it's really hard to overshadow the people in this on the screen and the scenarios they're going through. And then the way that, that Tony played with the music and included it when it was necessary and not when it wasn't. And he did things like what you just said, which is like cut out the bass when we want to feel the torpedoes being shot. It was almost like it was, you know, a hundred percent there to support and direct you on, you should feel tense. Now you should feel relaxed. Now you should feel um, like something's about to happen. You know, it was, very supportive for me as a viewer mm-hmm. rather than, than I'll oh, remember this is this moment, you know, which is like, if you watch like interstellar or something, right. I mean, and if you're, if you're on social media, you know what we're talking <laughs> about, then you, you f- might feel those things also, but they're so mm-hmm. iconic. Those sound, those themes are so right. iconic that like, you know, anyway, he was just a very different writer back then, um, which is totally fine, but it, it just supported for me. It wasn't something that I just, latched onto to be honest but it was beautiful it's beautiful nice yeah man i god i love this movie so much i think the the wrestling match with the philosophy is definitely what pulls me in because you have two incredible titans you know acting in scenes together uh a lot there's other films where you might have two big actors that maybe they don't actually have that many scenes together i'm talking about something like heat and so that happens, but seeing this where they're not just in scenes together, but they're in conflict constantly. And there's this chess match going on between them about authority. Like all of that pulled me in. There's a lot that I didn't understand as a kid watching this. I mean, the most basic fundamental thing I didn't understand was Crimson Tide itself. Um, and why the movie was called, I never understood. I just thought like, oh, it's like a bloody tide. Um, and it's a cool name. Uh, Alabama Crimson Tide is obviously like the football team. So it's a, it's a play on the USS Alabama. Um, and then using some of the imagery of a Crimson Tide, of course, um, it all kind of plays lightly in harmony, but thematically doesn't mean much because they could have easily just like hunt for October makes sense. That's literally what we're, we're what we're doing here. Uh, Crimson Tide uh, could just as easily be called to launch or not to launch. <laughs> like, <laughs> but yeah. it doesn't sound very cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, I the other thing as a kid, ever since this movie, I use the word concur like all the time. And every single time I say concur, I'm thinking about this movie. If you ever hear me use the <laughs> word concur, I am, you caught me in a moment thinking about Crimson Tide. So it's probably every day. <laughs> like last week, or I was on set with, you know, Sergio and, and Rocky and those guys. And uh, I said concur at least 50 times. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't bring it up because no one's going to know why would you link, you know, concur with this random movie. And of course the whole movie is about whether or not these two guys are in agreement. Um, but yeah, for me, it introduced that into my vocabulary and I've never looked back. Yes. <laughs> um, but I mean, other than that, like it's beautiful. Tony Scott, I mean, him and Ridley Scott both 
can shoot the hell out of anything. They can make a bad story just look beautiful and you want to watch it. Like I still watch Prometheus uh, despite it being Prometheus because it's just gorgeous. Um, And Crimson Tide, you're, I mean, to your point, like it is claustrophobic. He's shooting on these longer lenses, not just because it looks good, uh, but because if you shoot on wider lenses inside a submarine, it's going to feel like a much bigger space than it should. Like, Break out the longer lenses, compress the image, and make it feel like you're trapped, like you were saying, perfectly. Like, yeah, let's let's shoot longer, and so uh, we're going to cramp everything, and sooner or later, temperatures boil, and now it's like we're locked in the frame, just in the same way that they're locked in the ship. Um, it all is just sinking together. It's just, God, Tony Scott, man. Uh, definitely miss uh, looking forward to his movies. Um, and... Cinematography-wise, the other stuff, I mean, there's so much that's dramatic throughout the film. And the briefing room at the beginning, it's raining outside. And you can see all those water cascades on the windows all over everyone in the room. Like, they're just shooting all of that into the room. Um, And it feels like, before we even set out to see, it feels like we're already underwater. Yeah. We're already there. And it's just so dramatic that... It's dark in there. Everyone has raccoon eyes, right? Uh, if if you're shooting top light, normally you might want to bounce some of that light back into someone's face so that you can see their eyes. And if you don't do that, right, our eyes are recessed, right? We had the uh, concave um, orbital sockets. Um, and so you need that or else you get raccoon eyes, right? Those rings around her eye, under her eyes. Um, and he just let it live. He's like, nope. Uh, we'll get plenty of eye light later in the film when we're on the sub. But right now, we don't know who's who. And I feel like that's kind of a reflection of um, Hunter. You know, he doesn't really know who's who. You can't really look anyone in the eye or, or get a read on them just yet uh, because they're military men and they're got their walls up and they're here to do a job. Um, and I feel like that's all reflected in the lighting decisions right from the beginning. It's just beautiful and beautifully thought. And I love, it's so rare to see filmmakers now be comfortable with like the raccoon eyes to, uh, because people want, want everything to look pretty, look beautiful. Like, no, sometimes we really need to not be able to see what someone's thinking and you see what people are thinking through their eyes, uh, window to the soul, that whole thing. And so I would just love to see those decisions made specifically, you know, more often uh, than they than they really are. Now, I'm sure there's the heavyweights, Spielberg and whoever else that are comfortable with it. Uh, but a lot of upcoming newer filmmakers, I don't think they're comfortable with that. They just want pretty images. And I feel like I just really want to lead a rebellion on pretty images. <laughs> um, that's that's my Don Quixote uh, tilting at windmills kind of thing. Um, <laughs> uncivilizing the world. Um, but cinematography wise, also so many Dutch angles. Some are for just drama, right? And then some are for the setting. Some are for both, right? So the fire in the galley towards the beginning, our ship is level. We don't need to be tilted. Um, and that's what a Dutch angle is. I think Todd defined it earlier. Uh, but in case you missed it, like a Dutch angle is where you're not level. 
right? Um, you, you don't, you don't have zero bubble, <laughs> like, uh, you're, you're tilted on your axis a little bit left or right. Um, so like if you tilt your head to the left and the room kind of takes a tilt, of course we have really good correction in our, in our heads for that, uh, called a brain, I guess. Um, but otherwise, you know, when you do it with a camera, everything feels tilted and on its side and weird. And so you can do that to create a sense of drama and in the fire galley, uh, whenever the fire breaks out in the galley and Hunter rushes in, right? We, we look at him and then cut to the, the fire and it's on this heavy Dutch angle. We're like tilted 45 degrees to the, to the left. And it just feels crazy. It feels big. It feels dramatic. And then, but later it's for story reasons that you're on a ship. Sometimes it's got to go up and down. And to do that, it has to tilt. And so whenever the ship dives, uh, we do tilt uh with it and we we use a dutch angle that's now motivated by the story same thing later in the film when we're authenticating the eam to launch missiles um they use a dutch uh that's both motivated and dramatic so now it's both it's like we're diving but it's also like everything feels off kilter um because the story is also off kilter and then of course right uh when the the big drama is starting to unfold captain ramsey calls for a zero bubble right he's asking to level off the ship um and they start to level off and it's beautiful because they do that that's directing man he has to know exactly what i need when i need it um and they call for the zero bubble in a close-up and we cut around and then when we come back we're in this wide shot of the the con and the ship starts to level off as Hunter is making his way up the aisle to the captain. And so the ship visually levels off within the shot um, as he's walking up and it's physical. Like you can see they're clearly on uh, some kind of uh, uh, hydraulic uh, because Denzel himself, you can see the weight shift as it levels off. It's freaking gorgeous. That's a lot of work because if the ship is on hydraulics, that means the camera needs to compensate. Um, so either you're removing a wall so that you can shoot uninfluenced by the hydraulics, or if it's all, you know, stacked in, which I imagine you're flying off walls, that's probably a really expensive set. Um, and that case, like if you, but if you're not, if you're locked in, let's say they actually decided to moronically shoot this in a submarine, um, then you would need a way to compensate, you know, whether that's the cam op, um, or probably some other motorized control, um, with the gimbal. Um, but yeah, whatever, like Dutch angles were used superbly in this for so many reasons. And keeping in mind, this is in 1995. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a lot more advancements when it comes to like motorized (laughs) things. Uh, yeah. I don't uh, know how many techno cranes you were playing with back then, but exactly. uh, Probably harder to come by. Very expensive. Same thing. Cinematography, uh, a lot of EAM close-ups. The emergency action message, right? They have that box that lets you know when there's a message coming in. Uh, you've got mail. And so that they, they use it so many times throughout the movie, especially the early on. You need to do that because we need to understand when we are waiting for it to blink at the end, we can now recognize it and understand what's missing because we cut to those shots in the, at the end when we're waiting for, you know, comms to come back on and we're just looking at it basically at an empty frame. It's just a box with nothing on it. And if you don't set that up beforehand, we don't really understand why we're looking at this box. What does it matter? But if you set it up properly, of course, um, suddenly it carries emotional meaning. That blankness is like 
devastating. You're waiting like we need that thing to turn on. Yeah. And so you just need to set that up with a lot of EAM close-ups. But then at the end, I love when they're finally authenticating that final EAM. We're listening to everyone authenticate, right? Uh, rattle off, you know, the, the the codes. And we're just cutting around to reaction shots of everyone waiting. And it's a great use of our time. Because we already know what they do, how they do it. We've seen it a few times now. Now, it doesn't matter. We don't need to really sit and watch that happen. It's a much better use of our time if we cut to everyone and their anticipation. Build up some emotional stakes. Because that's the payoff moment. The answer to who is right. If we are, in fact, in a nuclear war is happening right there. Uh, just smart, like good directing decisions, good editing decisions. Uh, A++ all around. <laughs> um, yeah. Now for the big money. Um, story and writing wise, which is what really pulls you in. You give these guys, Denzel and Hackman, a reason to be in this movie. And it's through the writing. They spend a lot of time early in the film building relationships and perspectives, which build the stakes, right? And it starts with, you know, the birthday party. It establishes Hunter as a good dad, a good husband, right? He has something to fight for, all that stuff. And there's no need to belabor it, right? We have a birthday party. Then we have the tough goodbye at the dock and we get it and we feel it. This is a guy we trust and a guy we like. He's earned all of that. And just two really brief sequences. But it also builds a relationship with Weps, between Hunter and Weps, which is crucial for the betrayal later on. And we have two of those betrayals. The other one um, is established early on with that same doc sequence. Captain Ramsey is given that speech before putting out to sea, right? And who do we have? We have Mr. Cobb repeating every single thing Captain Ramsey says. Very inspiring, sir, or whatever he says. Uh, the finest, sir. Um, just echoing loudly every single phrase he says. Therefore, when Captain Ramsey retakes the ship near the end of the film, Cobb siding with Hunter instead of Ramsey, and as well as uh, Webb's siding with Ramsey instead of Hunter, so much betrayal on both sides. Because now you have Cobb, who was just word for word, right behind, lockstep with, with the captain, no longer saying what he says, right? He's taking a stand. And then you have Weps, who's buddies. He goes to his kid's birthday party. Like, that's that's bros, right? Uh, and now he's making a stance as well that's betraying that relationship with Hunter. And it's so, so good because betrayals on both sides is really important in order to establish that this is not about loyalty to the man. It's about loyalty to what you think is proper. And this furthers the conversation about the conflict at the heart of the film. Whereas if they had each sided with their own guy, it doesn't reveal anything. It's just about loyalty to your own. Betrayal is great here to help us tell the philosophical stakes. The who, the how, the when. Should a nuclear missile be launched and by whom? Like, that's all lockstep and betraying, you know, someone here really, really furthers that conversation. And those conversations are happening throughout the entire uh, movie, right? We have conversations about command and responsibility, the nature of war. Um, and I'll just glance at some of these conversations uh, because literally almost every time someone's talking, it's either one of those conversations or it's just establishing the stakes of the war itself right rachenko um it it's one or the other i don't know if there's any other conversations that really happen that's not about 
those things versus uh, the other. Um, I think pretty much every single conversation can boil down to to one of those two big conversations. Um, and so the officer's dinner that we heard is just a philosophical conversation, right? About the use of atomic weapons, the use of war, the nature of war, right? Philosophy is fun. That's a, that's, a fun t- that's a fun conversation to have over dinner. Why not? But then you have the conversation post weapons, uh, that, that weapons test and the fire galley, you know, in the death. Um, and now we're having another conversation. This is about chain of command. Um, and I love this little thing, uh, because we're going from phil- philosophical discussions. Yeah, I get it. No, I get it. Now it's like, nah, this isn't about philosophy. This is about doing what you're told. Um, and Ramsey has this comment where he says, look, I'm not looking for a company of kiss asses, but if you have something to say, then say it in private. And if that's not possible, then bite your freaking tongue. And it's like, it's, it's ironic, like laughing out loud here, uh, because we established at the start that Ramsey churns through XOs, right? Uh, his, his excuse when, when he's onboarding Hunter is my last guy has appendicitis. He's the best man I ever knew. And then we're walking down the hall and they're making jokes about uh, all the war that Ramsey's seen. They're like, yeah, he fought in Panama, you know, and then he took out nine XOs last year. <laughs> and, and it's like just making a comedy of like, oh, maybe the whole appendicitis thing is, isn't really what's going on here. Maybe this guy has a problem. He's just paying lip service about his position on kiss asses when actually what he actually wants is just people to agree with him and fall in line. That's all he really cares about. And at the end of that conversation, um, he says, we're here to preserve democracy, not to practice it, which is probably a tried and true uh, position in the military uh, all around the world, um, regardless of, of countries, certainly in, in the States, I'd imagine. Um, and, then, and then his statement in the clip that you shared of him being very black and white, being not not complicated. You show me how to push the button and tell me when. And you, that's what you get. You know, that's what the the military wants from him. And that makes sense. He's like, everybody under me can question all they want. They can think about all they want. They can be as complicated and make it as complicated as they want. But if I am complicated and mm-hmm. I'm the one pushing the button, then things delay. And if things delay, then according to him, people die or we lose or whatever. You know, like, like that was a very just a such an amazingly well-written scene that it's, it kind of reminds me of like a a really great song, like a, like a, like an old U2 song where they say the same thing that you already know, just in a new way. And all of a sudden you, you like come to life and you kind of like see it in a different light or you see, see it in a different way or, or you see it for the first time, you know? And in, in 1995, I imagine that is a really interesting conversation that probably hasn't been really had, you know, before. So anyway. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's hard to crystallize all these perspectives and boil them down into very simple motivating factors behind each character, right? To have Ramsey say, I'm simple. I'm trained to do this, everything you just said, like that's a really hard thing uh, to, to figure out and write in such a concise way. Like figuring out how to say a thing with a thousand words is pretty easy. I I do it every episode. (laughs) 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 
but Touché, good sir. <laughs> learning how to do it in a sentence, man, that takes a lot of skill. Um, and this is just a masterclass on writing, like all phases. Um, the other, com- another conversation that they're having that is very much in line with what, you know, you were just saying, it's a conversation about horses, actually. Uh, it's not obvious, you know, on its face, but horses are a metaphor for control of the ship, right? It's about riding them. It's about conquering and leading. Only one person is at the reins. And so ultimately there's a horse and a rider. You're one or the other. You're taking commands or giving them. It's not a coincidence that this conversation is laced throughout the film and small splashes. Uh, but it's just another one of those little subtle reinforcing concepts that feels like a conversation about something else. And also a really good use of at the end of the film, post you know uh whatever the the meeting was you know with the other officers uh when hackman gets to say you were right and we're like oh we're gonna have a uh that moment and he's like about the horses it's just like a, a really great way to uh, admit defeat without having to admit defeat which he kind of does at the end when he walks off right he reads the final message and he retires um to his room i took that as he's giving up control of the ship uh because man did he screw that one up Another conversation is when they're trying to convince Webs, which side note, the naming convention in this is so good. You have, I mean, it's, look, it's a total sausage fest. You have so many dudes on screen. You're not going to remember everyone's name. And so you want to simplify some of these things. Webs is his name, but it's also what he's in charge of. He's in charge of weapons. You, you can take that as a, a naming convention within this group. Or you can take it as, that's his name. Either way, it works because now every time you hear Weps, you're thinking weapons and you know what he's in charge of in his role on the ship. Um, similar with Cobb. Uh, he's chief of the boat, right? And so COB, um, Cobb, you can start to understand his, his position, his role through his name itself. And so those are really nice, simple reinforcing factors um, that maybe you'll pick it up, but regardless, they're easy to hear, easy to say, and they reinforce their role on the ship. If you care to actually pick up on that. Some people won't. There's a lot of words and jargon flying around, but the, the conversation with Webs, where they're trying to convince them of retaking the ship to unlock the, the armory and hand out guns uh, is another debate about the chain of command orders doing the right thing. What is the right thing? He just wants the time to confirm the message. That's the whole point. We don't have time. That's a real issue, right? That they're trying to reconcile uh, and is ultimately, I, uh, well, we'll come back to that. And this, you know, uh, uh, Zimmer is making that comment. This is a mutiny and your captain is asking for your help. I love this for two reasons. One, He's misnaming a proper rule as mutiny, right? If you can now position uh, Hunter as mutineer instead of someone who's following proper protocol, well, now you're in the proper moral authority. You, you, it's your duty to retake the ship for the captain, right? We need to put down this mutiny. And now this is where everything gets so beautifully muddy um, for a story, maybe not on a ship, <laughs> but, but you need it. You need like to, to have this wrestling match of who's right and who's wrong. And here, the other thing that he's doing is he's leveraging the captain's position as an authority figure. And 
we'll, I'll try to remember to come back to that. I can't remember if I wrote it in my notes, but that's a really important aspect of this story of abuse of power, potentially being a, a side of this whole story. Right. And then another conversation, Hunter and Cobb, when they're in lockup after they've retaken the ship, Ramsey's back in the, the captain's chair. Um, and now Hunter and Cobb are in lockup and they're once again, discussing the stakes. If Russia launches, it's bad. If we launch on wrong orders, it's just as bad. And so I don't know that they say this, but my my read, my takeaway is that maybe you have to err on the side of not launching. You can't take that back. And I think that's where Hunter is trying to err on. He's trying to err on the side of not doing irreversible damage. And that's a hard pill to swallow for a bunch of guys who are trained to shoot, you know, especially when ordered to shoot. You're now acting against your instincts. And then, of course, Webb's finally at the end takes a moral stand um, against the captain, right? He's, he's in his chair and he just got the call from Hunter and Hunter's trying to talk to his friend and talk to what should be his subordinate um, and to, you don't have to do this. You can make a choice. You can make a stand. You can do the right thing. Just think for a second, think this through, think through the big picture, not the small picture. The small picture says you have to do this thing. The big picture says we have redundancy. There are other people who can do this. Um, and until we clarify our orders, you don't have to do this. Um, and so what is what here's the order from, uh, from captain Ramsey and what does he do? It's the greatest shot in the movie. He takes a drag on a cigarette. It's man. That's amazing. So cool. It's so, so cool, cool, bro. It's so cool. Man. Smoking is so cool. <laughs> All the kids should do it. All the kids kidding. should do it. But what I love about it is. It's it's doing subversion in two different order ways, right? He's he's rejecting the order by taking a drag on a cigarette, right? Smoking in a submarine is antith is antithetical to what you're supposed to be doing on a submarine, right? It's antithetical to the opening when they're on the deck smoking cigars, and so it's an open act of disobedience. You should never be smoking, I assume. You should not be smoking on a submarine uh, based on, I, I guess, logic. I'm sure they have filters or whatever, but uh, still probably not a good idea. And so it's just a perfect reflection of what he's actually doing. Now, maybe in reality, he he just doesn't follow the order. But adding that extra touch of I'm not just rebelling, I'm going to smoke and reinforce that just in case you didn't catch it, uh, Cap, like uh, I'm, I'm here, I'm taking a five. Yeah. And then, of course, Ramsey puts a gun to his head. Counts to three. If there's a time to change your mind, it's going to be there. And he doesn't, right? He he doesn't back down um, until he threatens to kill someone else. He's like, whoa, hey, dude, don't do that. Fine, I'll open it. Um, now, ultimately, there is no resolution to this whole issue because perhaps it's a paradox to the military. Can you have absolute power to destroy the world? But without chain of command, the military breaks down. And so... This, to me, is the bigger issue, um, and I think what uh, Hunter is saying in that, in that clip, he's trying to draw a distinction between war that we've known and now in a nuclear world, war is different now. You can't just blindly accept orders, and war will never end if you don't. You can't go to war with war is, was his actual point, right? But the only way to, to, to not have war is to literally not engage in warfare. Um, and fine, look, you can launch a missile and 
kill a bunch of innocent people and apologize later. Like there is unspeakable tragedy in that. No question. I mean, the last 15 years have proven just how devastating technology, you know, can be now. If you've never read uh, the drone papers, go read that. Go read the synopsis. Obama was killing civilians and uh, relabeling them as enemy combatants. Like, just bonkers. Like, everyone loves Obama, right? Okay. Uh, go read that and reassess maybe what you think about his time as president. And Hunter is over here trying to say, like, you can do those things and come back from it. The second we launch a nuclear warhead, no coming back from that. You have to rethink that, that whole process, all of it. Um, chain of command maybe can't stand up to the weight of nuclear warfare. Um, and that's a really important conversation and, and way to rethink chain of command and pushing the button, so to speak. Yeah. Cause the end of the film makes a point to say that now it solely result resides with the president. And I'm like, should it? <laughs> should it? <laughs> yeah. Should anyone? I uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. Same. Like I, I understand tactically why, why we have to take these stances. Right. Of course. Um, because if people don't think you're willing to use their weapon, then they'll use theirs potentially and, um, and you. And so you, but in my mind, like if I'm the guy that's being told to push the button, you're going to have to shoot me. Like I'm never, I don't care if I can see the missiles coming at us. I'm still not launching it because everyone's going to lose fine. They won, but maybe 200 years from now, something else takes place. We can see that I'll die. I'll literally die on the hill. I don't know. There, there's just no good solution to launching a, anyone launching a nuclear weapon. I don't, I think you have to live with mutually assured destruction as a concept, not as an actual practice, I, I guess is my point. But I love, but that's why I love this movie is it, it's trying to invoke all this conversation it, and without ever telling you what the actual answer is. We, we mm -hmm. end the movie and they literally say that, right? The, their whatever general is like, we're going to be talking about this for years because we don't know. We simply don't know. Um, you're both right and you're both wrong. You disobeyed the chain of command, but it ended up being the right call. Um, and you, you're retired now. <laughs> like you go away. <laughs> you can go walk your dog. <laughs> you walk it off, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, before did, I don't know if you want to comment on any of that before I jump into those last couple thoughts. No, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying like I'm trying my best here. No, uh, to, we can we can talk about it all we want off air. Yeah, I, exactly. I think we're just going to leave the uh, yeah uh, the the military discussion to the military. Yeah, because I exactly. know that. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping to provoke conversation, not to be like the final moral arbiter of anything here. Exactly. I mean, you know, we you know if, if when you go back and watch our episode uh, or listen to our episode of uh, a few good men, mm -hmm. you know, there are arguments, there are arguments. And, and I don't think that what we're saying like negates the necessity for a military, a strong military willing to take action uh, or anything like that. I just think to the, it's it, this film to your point does a great job of saying this is different. It's, you know, it went from uh, guys on uh, guys with sticks to guys on horses to guys with bows and arrows to guys with muskets to guys with machine guns. And now 
this. And this is a completely different thing than any other, uh, you know, war development throughout history, I feel like. So I am not going to speak to it. I, I do not. Yeah, it's crazy that between this and Chernobyl, it wasn't my intention to string together like nuclear discussions so close together. Right. Um, but and Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer, right? <laughs> like it's all right there because <laughs> nuclear could be salvation. It could be uh, the end of all things, you know, humanity. Um, and we get to decide. Um, yeah, it's a good conversation to have, even just amongst friends. Um, yes. Certainly in the political landscape, we, sh- we need to be having these conversations and we're really not. Uh, we are really not having those uh, discussions um, where it counts. So yeah, uh, the other that's, I guess that's the other thing I love about this film, which is the authenticity. Like, I love all the little technical details, the dialogue jargon, right? Proper titles and execution of orders, repeating the command. Like it eats up a ton of page on the script, but it really pays off in the feeling of authenticity. Um, and it's strangely compelling. Like I could watch these guys just take orders and do their jobs and that would have been a good movie. Um, but it's, it's, it's really cool. The other thing that I thought was interesting is the way they named Russia as an enemy. Uh, well, technically a militant faction throwing a coup, uh, a coup in, in Russia. Um, and ultimately that coup gets put down. Um, but naming big world leaders, it, we don't really see that as much over the last like 10, 15 years. Like they've really, we've really dialed that back in the media, uh, in movies and in stories. And I think for good reason, I think for it's, it's the beauty of, uh, living in a, a free market, like having, something you want to sell to these people. Like we want to sell to China. So we're not going to throw China under the bus. And to some degree it can be unhealthy. I don't deny that, but to another degree, it can be very welcoming um, and trying to pull them into the fold um, and say, there's another way to do life. And the more you can expose. And I think this is the absolute best export that America has is our entertainment because our artists speak to the spirit of humanity and speak to the spirit of brothership um, and, and all mankind being unified. Um, that happens in our art. The more we let other cultures that don't necessarily share their visions of liberty and freedom, the better. The, I want Russia and I want China and Cuba and whoever else imbibing these vibes, right? Uh, yeah. to, to be thinking about chain of command and, and doing the right thing. I want them to be thinking about all these things. And whenever you're labeling them as the enemy, yeah, you're probably going to be a little deaf. <laughs> like, how yeah, can we yeah. hear that? And so I like the direction that the world is moving in, in that lane. Um, though there's other ways that we could, you know, discuss it. But this was in 95 and, you know, in the 80s and 90s during the Cold War, very popular to use Russia as a punching bag. Uh, Red Dawn, anybody <laughs> like uh, uh, go Wolverines? Um, and so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, lastly, some random facts. This will go really quickly. Unlike the Air Force helping Tony Scott make Top Gun, the Navy didn't like the script and would not help him make Crimson Tide. That meant no access to submarines and military bases, no advisories. And man, do I love Tony Scott for saying, all right, F you, we're going to do it anyway. So many filmmakers wouldn't do that today. They would just 
take the propaganda. And I'm sorry, that's what it is. Uh, whenever you refuse to tell the story that you're trying to tell because you might offend uh, government officials and you change the story to fit their narrative, that's you're you're just propagating whatever it is that they want and you're just becoming a mouthpiece. Um, and, and so I love Tony Scott for saying, nah, we're going to make the movie that we think we need to make. And so what they did is instead they used for one, the French Navy. That's why the CNN reporter is on a French, uh, aircraft, uh, launcher. Um, and he says it a couple of times, but the other thing that he does, and this is really cool is production camped out at Pearl Harbor, waiting for a submarine to be put out to sea so that they could get B-roll um, and no. footage of the sub. <laughs> and they looked at them and they're like, yeah, it's legal. We can do this. Uh, and so we will. F you. Um, and so they literally just waited around until finally a sub uh, was going out. They jumped in helicopters and and uh, and on a boat and, and started rolling and just what get, grabbing the shots waiting to see until uh it's tony emerged. scott did gorilla style <laughs> filming yeah, oh my god that's i'm in love with this man already <laughs> right and in, in coincidentally it was actually the uss alabama that just happened to be no going out to sea. so just yeah uh, dude that is crazy <laughs> that's so cool oh yeah i love that um the other thing is that this story is based on an actual situation that happened. And so they referenced the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, a couple of times. Um, and that's exactly what the story is based on. The, there was a Soviet uh, submarine, B-59, in October of 1962, like October 21st. And so they're kind of emulating the timeline a little bit. And what happened was a U.S. Navy found this sub submerged near Cuba and started sending depth charges trying to get it to surface. Now, these depth charges were, we weren't at war, right? And so what's happening is the, the, the Navy is sending what's actually training charges effectively, right? They have very little charge. They're not designed to like blow up the, the sub, but the B-59 doesn't know that. And so on board this submarine, they're debating whether or not to launch. And so they're thinking that war's broken out and the captain wants to now use their nuclear torpedoes on the Navy. And so in order to launch the nuclear torpedo, they needed to, they needed agreement from three officers on board and two of them, the captain and political officer wanted to launch, but the detachment commander did not. And so there was a whole wrestling match of the detachment commander trying to talk down the captain from doing this. I, that, that's about as much as I know of, of the story. Uh, eventually, uh, he does convince the captain to surface and await orders from Moscow. But yeah, that... Oh my God. Yeah, that's wild. Just... I mean, you know, it's you hear about the Cold War, you hear about... Cuban Missile Crisis, and and you hear about those things like they're in the past, like everything is fine. But there have been a few times I've thought, how close did we actually come? I will link in the show notes a whole list. Um, some of them are called into question, so they're not necessarily all perfectly confirmed. 
but it's a long list of very close calls of just weird things, just bad timing. Like it, it watching this movie and saying two bad things happened at once. They ran into an enemy sub or a sub they couldn't identify. They didn't even know if yeah. it was an enemy sub. And then the, the radio buoy getting caught in the winch. Yeah. Those just two bad luck things nearly cost them like a nuclear war. Yeah. And you might look at that and say, Oh, what are the odds? Like, this is lightweight compared to some of the weird, crazy one-off things that happen that could have triggered a cascade of events with nuclear Holocaust, you know, uh, results. Like I was, I had to stop reading about halfway through. I was like, I, this is like terrifying how close wow. so many times the wrong person making the wrong decision. Like one of them, there's uh, uh, a guy who drives this truck onto a runway in order to stop like jets from taking off. Like he's like, no, 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 no. Like there's so many of those and some things where it's like they lost communication with this guy and all the redundancies are like, and it turns out, you know, a ship broke up uh, and had to abandon. And at the same time, a flock of geese took out a satellite or not a satellite, but took out a radio tower and just just bad, bad luck. And luckily, you know, a couple of people were like, I, I don't think this klaxon ringing and, and telling me to launch missiles. I don't think it's right. I just don't think it's right. So we're going to wait. Um, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but it also goes wow. to a lot of my personal opinions about, <laughs> uh, nuclear weapons. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but man, ultimately, it's a beautiful movie. The philosophical stakes are there. I love that it doesn't come to this nice, tidy conclusion. And I think that's another thing you and I really love is not being uh, told what the moral is sometimes when there's obviously no moral here. Uh, yeah. There's no obvious solution because as much as I might like to see the end of all war, there's still a lot of warfare out there. And therefore, to your point, we probably do need a military. We need a strong one who can react. And yeah, anyway, this movie is just masterful. Everything you said, like it's a masterclass <laughs> on writing, on performing, on shooting, on directing, on scoring, on sound editing, like in everything, uh, just the, the, and the effects. Can you, God. can we also address the watch rewatchability? I mean, you watched it two and a half times, right? I mean, I could literally go watch it right now and be thoroughly entertained the entire time. And I, I want to say, yes, it has to do with the writing and the and the shooting and all that stuff. But it, it is it is probably 70 percent Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington. Denzel is not my more. favorite actor in the world, man. I just I'll watch anything with him in it, man. Uh, I I went to a movie not too long ago and I was like. I know this isn't going to be great, but you know what? I'm still going to have a really good time because I know which one you're talking about and I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going, I, I, I really want to go tonight. We'll if, see. If you give me Denzel, I'm in, you win. I'm, yeah. I'm not big on actually watching Shakespeare, but I watched the hell out of Macbeth because yeah. Denzel. Yeah. God, is he good? He's so good. Yeah. Bro. So God. good, man. The great film. Uh, and then, yeah, we need to do more Gene Hackman movies, though, uh, because he is also gripping. My God. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like especially later in his career, like the older he got, the more, um, I guess, it, uh, believable and and like like 
um, he is like, you know, in this role is perfect. You know, him playing the captain, you believe him, you believe he's been through war. You believe he's been through a lot of stuff and, and he, he's hardened. He is the way he is because of his experience. If he were, you know, as young as he was when he, you know, played Lex Luthor and Superman, you know, it wouldn't have been the same, you know, it, it, it he had to be older. And so like his, the, the older he got, the, the more I liked his performances, the more they uh, weight they had to them for me. Completely yeah. agree. As much as I like, was it bat 71? Um, I remember watching that as a kid um, and loved it, but in the convert, uh, the conversation, my God um, would fit perfectly. Uh, I, it's a shame. I'm not recommending that, but, um, but yeah, we, I mean, we could do like unforgiven at some point because. Ooh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I lied. He's just good all around. <laughs> He's all around, baby. But it was the around. same era. I mean, it, it was maybe a couple of years before oh, this. Um, that's right. It yeah. Was. yeah. Yeah. Same era, like 92. Um, I want to say. Yeah. God, Gene Hackman. So yeah, we should line up a, a couple more of, of those at some point. Nice. Uh, final thoughts, man. It's, it's flawless. It's, it's perfect war film. It's a perfect, like heady film. It's, it's just, th- there's nothing. Uh, the runtime is perfect. The, you know, there's, there's no fluff anywhere. Like you said, they get from one, th- you know, from the launch of the boat in, into the boat, like really quick. Like, it's just so, so well done in all the ways. I wish they made movies like this. I wish they had no fear and, and did stuff like wait, you know, at, at go to Pearl Harbor and just wait for a boat to leave. I wish they did stuff like that, but because of probably a lot of reasons, notwithstanding streaming and platforms like that, I just feel like there's, there's less opportunity to do stuff like that. Um, but also trusting directors, you know, or having the directors of, of the level of Tony Scott to trust is also a hard thing. I think nowadays, you know, yeah. like mm-hmm. they're, there's just things that he did in this movie that and and a lot of movies around this time that have to do with with war. I feel like they just nailed something in a way that it's really hard to do now. I think that now maybe there's more like desire for shock and awe or blood and guts or just, you know, explosions and shit like that where there's very little of that in this movie. And it's all about the interactions and the relationships uh, and the the words and the the belief systems of the men on board and how they collide than it is about any of that stuff. And I just miss that. And I want more of that. But but you have to do it really well in order for something like this to to land. And it just is is so good. I wish that we could have more of that. I mean, and hopefully, hopefully the strike will get reconciled soon which it doesn't look like it will but hopefully it will soon and and you know we can give writers what they deserve i mean i'm on the writer side i don't give a shit who you if you are or not i don't care i'm on the writer side without good writing everything else is moot nothing else matters if you have a shitty script no amount of polish (laughs) will turn that turd into anything else amen polished turd thank you just Pay the writers what they what they are due and then some give them all they want instead of paying, you know, The Rock 30 million dollars to do a freaking movie, pay somebody new five million dollars or one million dollars or two and pay the writer 
much more money than they're you're paying them now like it i promise you you will get so many great scripts you will have so much great material to make and that's the problem is that i think that i'm I'm going on a soapbox here but i don't give a shit I, i feel like hollywood is just on this on this they're on this path of of destruction to just redo things or do things they know will work as opposed to making something that is good from the start with a great script with people that you that people don't know like i okay so if you're gonna make movies that are gonna go to streaming why not take more chances you know why not take more chances on new actors on new writers on new directors take the chances you know you can pay them a little less money you don't have to pay get the rock you know because what's going to happen what's going to happen is if it's really good people will talk about it and when people talk about it stuff happens like how do you think the uh what was the series that was huge last year that uh, oh squid games squid games squid games was was gigantic it's not even in english but because it's so it was so well written and so well done Everybody talked about it and it exploded. And it was something that that maybe the idea had done been done before, but not in this way. You know, there are so many opportunities out there. Take the chance. Nobody knew any of those actors like nobody mm-hmm. here in the States, yeah. at least take the chances. That's all I have to say. This nobody makes movies like this anymore. And they should because it's phenomenal. It's just so good. So. I love that, man. Uh, ditto, ditto. And this movie gives you everything you want out of sub out of a submarine movie and which is tricky to do in like peacetime but you want to you want to shoot off some torpedoes you want to blow up stuff you want to you know sink to the bottom of the ocean and feel like you're gonna get crushed you want a captain making hard decisions um which is another thing that you know uh, he gets challenged on right uh denzel um as he's taking command you're not ready to make tough, tough decisions yet, right? He's issued this challenge and then we have to go and find out, right? So let's see Hunter handle battle and make a tough call and then take out the enemy sub, but at a cost, right? And they all nearly sink and die. And his heroic moment suddenly creates an opening to doubt Hunter and stage real mutiny. Um, and it's all those things that you want, these power dynamics of everyone being compressed by space and by the situation, all those things that you want out of a submarine movie, they do it. Um, and they do it to the nines without ever needing to do the big thing that we're all afraid of, right? That's the hard thing to load the gun of shooting a nuclear missile and figure out a way to make it satisfying that it doesn't get launched. And they do. We're all happy Great that point. they don't launch it, right? We get to the end of the movie and it's like, okay. That was a really great experience, um, and I'm glad that the gun didn't go off. Um, metaphor gun. Um, yeah. Uh, the other thing, oh god, I, f- I forgot. Um, there's this is such a simple little nothing, um, but I love that whenever they retake, when Captain Ramsey does his own little coup and retakes the ship, Gandolfini's character, Lieutenant Dougherty, is pointing his gun at Hunter's chest and instead of his head. And I love that. It's an easier target than the head. And I feel like too many movies have people pointing guns at heads instead of like in 
that close proximity, it's so much easier to miss a headshot. The the saying is you charge a gun and run from a knife. Um, and it's for that reason. Um, it's hard to, harder to aim in close proximity. And so he's aiming at the, that's a beautiful, simple little tactical thing that a military guy would understand. Yeah. Just I love a- it. authentic, man. Yeah. I love it. Uh, yes. So what are you going to recommend this week? <laughs> <laughs> this this week I'm going to recommend uh, a film that I grew up on and absolutely adore and I can't believe that we haven't covered it yet and we totally should The Fugitive from 1993. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, I loved this movie because I don't of, care. <laughs> That's what? what he said. That's what oh, he says to time. I don't jump. care. I don't <laughs> care in the in the hall or the yeah. tunnel whatever before he jumps. So good. So many iconic uh, little little things that happen. Great acting, great storytelling, great plot twists, and just just all around really, really good. Now, I haven't seen it in 25 right, years. Same. So Maybe I it wonder hold if it would hold up, but, but I, I don't doubt for a second that it would hold up. Same. I, I agree. feel like that is just another f- pretty flawless film. So, yeah, The Fugitive. Nicely done. I'm going to go back twanky uh, years as well. And recommend U571. Oh, yeah. If you want another submarine movie, it's got McConaughey and Harvey Cartel. Do you need more? And so it's it's them on a submarine. And World War II, don't watch it for factual accuracy. It is wildly inaccurate. But it's a really good time. If you just want to hang out and shoot things or whatever they do, uh, you'll have you'll have fun. I uh, highly recommend it. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, yeah, stay tuned for next week. I think, I think we're going to have a, a special guest, uh, Sergio Trejos is a sound engineer and he's going to join us for the revenant. Yeah. I'm excited about Ooh. that. That one's a long time coming. Yeah. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review, leave us a note. Uh, if you're enjoying the, the show and shout out to Uva, he listened to your track last week, man said he really liked it. Uh, he picked awesome. up a new fan. So hopefully everyone has been digging that. We'll have another track released next week. And if we can uh, get, Sergio with us then it'll be really fun to, to listen to the track with him yeah so I'm excited about that stay tuned for all of that and if you want to comment on this episode you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash crimson tide and our quote of the day is from Carl von Clausewitz it is even better to act quickly and err than to hesitate until the time of action is past is it? <laughs> yeah he says that and it's like no Said I mean, it with a period at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> like this whole movie, I feel like is a contradiction of the Klauschwitz, you know, way of thinking. Like if you take that mentality into this film or into this scenario, you just erred on the side of ending humanity. Congratulations. Right. You're a moron. Right. And so having that mentality, you know, has paid off in, in years past, but the nature of the game has changed as we've both been saying. And as this movie has been saying, nuclear changes everything and so we we probably need to reconsider a lot of things um especially erring on the side of uh, action maybe not necessarily uh the big payday that it once was uh yeah Hmm. totally agree Hmm. amazing well, this is a lot of fun. Uh, gave me a great excuse to rewatch this film. Yeah, uh, ho- hopefully you guys enjoyed uh, not only the film, but our coverage of it. Wes, you had some great insight there that blew my mind. 
and if there's a film that you'd like to hear us uh, kind of pick apart, we'd love to hear what you what you'd like to hear us do. Maybe we'll maybe we'll cover it. Who knows? Uh, and make sure to subscribe, review us wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps a ton. We really, really, really appreciate that. And until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Oh,